Welcome to episode 209 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Sacha, Darlin, Jeff, and Andrea. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Sacha, Darlin, Jeff, and Andrea, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host. Because I'm traveling this week, I'm sharing a talk by Mary Pearl T. This particular talk is a portion of a workshop on the 12 steps, and it starts in the middle of a personal story. The story leads into her discussion of step six, so I'm leaving it in. And I picked up my gallon, and we're walking out, and Jennifer turns to me, and she said, I didn't know you worked for Sears. I said, I don't. And she said, well, why didn't you warn me? And I said, you heard it the same time I did. I don't know why that happens. It's sort of like you're playing a game and you just want to see how far it's going to go and where it's going to end. It's it's just, uh, and she said, and I hate Jennifer, you know, she's so sweet and naive and wonderful. And she said, well, wasn't that dishonest? And I said, um, yes. And she said, well, what are you going to do about that? And I said, well, Jennifer, I'm going to write Sears and tell them about the nice young man in the paint department who was so helpful. I said, that's how I'm going to make an amends for that, because I don't feel like I hurt that little boy. And I said, maybe that's justification and rationalization, but I said, I can swear, I did not have one idea that was going to happen until I heard it. Now, I don't know what kind of defense that you would take against a mind like that. So I'm here to tell you, I'm still sick. But at least the sickness that I'm doing today is not harmful to other people. Like it was, I mean, you know, I didn't have to buy this till a dinner. Okay. Another thing I found about myself that I was going to have to give up was arrogance, that acting superior. And a lot of times I didn't feel I was acting. <laughs> I looked at people and found them wanting a lot. You know? <laughs> that was one of those cases where I was over-educated beyond my intelligence. But you see, this was another shield that I would put up to protect me from you. I had a lot of things that I did to protect me from you. And I had to become willing to learn to live without doing these kind of things. And it's hard, and it's scary. But you have to try over and over and over. Over and over. And what was my best motivator for wanting to change? Pain. Pain is always, when I hurt so long practicing a particular defect that I can't stand to get hurt like that anymore, then I'll generously give it up. You know? And I would be willing to give God those defects. Now, the anger. Anger was very hard for me to give up. I was willing to give up physical violence. That was hard, too. I enjoyed physical violence. Have you ever noticed how that when you're really, really mad, if you can do some physical activity, it just lets it go? Well, if you can punch people out, it just really goes quick. And I enjoyed that. But I blamed everybody for my anger whenever anything went wrong. It wasn't them. It was me. Prime example, 
I sent away for a preserved fern. Now, a preserved fern is a real fern that they've done some little weird chemical process to that you don't ever have to water it, feed it, nothing. You just plunk it in a little straw basket and forget about it. It doesn't have to have light. doesn't have to have water. And I paid a king's ransom for this fern. And it came in this box with these long fronds and this little basket and this little hanger to hang it with, one of these little rope macrame type things. And I asked J.D. to help me with that fern. Mistake number one. (laughs) Needless to say, communication was not one of our biggies. I got all these little things arranged, and it was just gorgeous. It was just draping. It was just absolutely fantastic. And I said, here, hold it. Now, what I meant when I said hold it was hold the flower puck. Hold the little bit. So I can put the little macrame thing on it. But that's not what I said. I said, hold it. And he did. He held the little hanger and I held the hanger. <laughs> now, the fern hit, hit the floor. Now, are you familiar with airplanes on an aircraft carrier deck? You know how the little wings are folded up? That's the way the fern fronds were going out and down like that. You know, they just, they were just broken just into little, it was horrible. And I looked at it and I couldn't believe that happened. And it was all his fault because he hadn't held the pot. And my sane reaction to this was, I stomped the fern to death in the carpet. <laughs> I just did a little tap dance, like this, all over my fern. It didn't help anything. He looked startled. And I felt like an idiot. I could no longer justify that kind of behavior. And I looked at him and I said, I didn't make myself clear. I meant hold the pot. He said, I didn't understand it. I said, I know. But that before would have caused physical violence. It did to the firm. (laughs) And I began to realize that that kind of behavior was like a little kid. You know, when a little kid doesn't get their way, they have a little stomping fit. At least I used to. Still had one there. I became willing to not do it that way and to get rid of the anger. I became willing and I said, God, how can I get rid of anger? Well, how I got rid of a lot of these things, I have not been relieved of anger. I have been relieved of the anger that would cause physical harm to people, places, and things. I think... Nowhere in the book does it show where anybody has ever been removed of all of their character defects or any. But you will have enough of them, enough of a particular defect removed that you will be socially acceptable. Okay? <laughs> I was not socially acceptable, you know. Okay. And it says, no matter how far you progressed, you will have desires which oppose the grace of God. And I thought that this um, feeling I had a lot of these defects would be removed and they'd be removed once and for all. Take the one that would say, let's be unfaithful. That one I asked God, I was more than willing to have that one removed. And I hadn't had any problem with it for years and then all of a sudden one day I was attracted. And I said, oh God, that defect is back. Now, I have a choice. Do I fall through with that knowing full well what the consequences are? I want to. Because, see, your mind will reflect back on how exciting that was. It's like with the alcoholic forgetting the consequences of the drink they took 
only remembering the pleasure how good it tasted. And I sat there and I played with that for a day or two, and I knew that the longer I played with that, the more dangerous I was getting. So I called and I asked if this person would pray for me that I had the urge to do something I knew I shouldn't do. And I wouldn't tell her what it was, because, see, I was ashamed that you could be an Al-Anon and still have these kind of feelings, for God's sake. And she said, okay, I'll pray. And it didn't do me much good, because, you see, I was keeping it a secret, going right back and keeping it a secret. So I called her back in a day or two, and I said, I'm going to have to tell you what this is, because it's getting stronger. And she said, okay. And I told her what it was that I'd been attracted to this person, and they seemed to be attracted back, and it was not a very good situation. And she said, I'll pray. And I said, she said, what do you want me to pray for? And I said, you pray for God to remove from me the desire to do something I know I shouldn't do. Because I alone do not have the strength to do it myself. And so some time went by, and I was put in the proximity of this person, and I was sitting there reading my One Day at a Time book, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm reading a one day at a time book. He said, what's that? And I said, well, it's a book for the families and friends of alcoholics. And he said, my God, people bitch about people's drinking all the time. I tell you what, this whole world's down on poor people that drink. And he just, and I thought, he's one of them. No wonder I was attracted to him. And I laughed because the desire had been removed. So that's what I'm saying, you know. When you become entirely ready to have it. And I became entirely ready when I became entirely ready to become clean and tell her what the nature of the problem was. Okay. Now, we go on to step seven. Now, just becoming ready, don't get it. you got to do more than just be ready. Then you've got to humbly ask God to do it. Now, humbly doesn't mean God take this one. It doesn't mean giving him his orders. It means sincerely having humility in your heart, recognizing you can't do it by yourself. That you're going to become teachable to a new way to live so that you don't have to do it. That's all that means. It's just to become willing. Now, I found that for a lot of character defects, there's positive opposites. Something that's the opposite of what you're doing. So what I do is I pray and I ask God and then I move over into the act as if. I go over and I remove myself from situations that I know have the power to hurt me. And that's what I was doing in this situation. I was moving myself away from that person because the problem was. Okay. Now, we go on to step seven. Now, just becoming ready, don't get it. you got to do more than just be ready. Then you've got to humbly ask God to do it. Now, humbly doesn't mean God take this one. It doesn't mean giving him his orders. It means sincerely having humility in your heart, recognizing you can't do it by yourself. That you're going to become teachable to a new way to live so that you don't have to do it. That's all that means. It's just to become willing. Now, I found that for a lot of character defects, there's positive opposites. Something that's the opposite of what you're doing. So what I do is I pray and I ask God and then I move over into the act as if. I go over and I remove myself from situations that I know have the power to hurt me. And that's what I was doing in this situation. I was moving myself away from that person because I knew he had the power to hurt me if I played that game. Those are sick games that we sometimes play with people. And you have to be willing not to play the game. 
So when I would find myself in a situation where I was getting mad at somebody, instead of staying there for the bitter end, I found I can walk away. I don't have to stay there. I don't have to keep putting myself into situations that hurt me. In that fourth and fifth step, I saw patterns of my life that I do this and this would happen. You don't have to keep going back because you know now what situations have the power to hurt you. And when you go back and you play that game, you get what you ask for. You're going to get hurt. You ask for it. You got it. You drive your Toyota. And that's the truth. Because I have, I've gone back and played silly games and gotten hurt and I knew better. And that's because I asked for it. I didn't do any what I was supposed to do. So, when I do my morning prayer, I do my step three prayer. And if you notice at the end of the third step prayer in the big book, it doesn't say Amen. The Amen comes after the seventh step prayer. So I say those two together. And I try to pray those two together instead of just saying them. But to listen to what they say and to do that. And to ask God to remove any defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to him or my fellow man this day, today. And you know every day we're given opportunities to grow, to practice a defect or to practice recovery. We can live in the sickness or we can live in the recovery. I hear so many people say, but you don't understand. I was so affected by my father's drinking or my mother's drinking or my, my dog's howling or, or whatever. It doesn't make any difference how you got your ass in the mud. Get it out. <laughs> Living in the sickness makes me sicker. Have you ever been to a meeting where you play, can you top this? They'll come in and say, oh, my God, it was so bad at the house tonight. This one did this and this one did that. Well, you think that's bad. Let me tell you what happened over here. And I would sit there in those meetings, and I would remember going back to the active alcoholism in my mind, and they would be talking about these things, and they would go on, and I'd say, well, let me tell you what J.D. did one time. And I'd go home, and I'd say, you are a scum-sucking pig. (laughs) Get mad all over again because we're living in the sickness. I don't like to go to meetings where we live in the sickness or we say, has anybody got a problem? Who hasn't? But who cares? Has anybody got a solution? You know. you got to live in the solution. And so in our group, when somebody comes in and they say, oh, it's so bad over at my house, we have sort of a little chorus that goes, one, two, three, poor baby. Who cares? And then we go on. You, know, you get no sympathy in our group. <laughs> All right, I had to become willing to give up fear. And this has been a real big thing for me, to become willing to give up fear. Because what will happen to you? <laughs> you know, it's scary. Okay, the fear of storms. Fear is always scary, isn't it? I told God, I said, you know, I'm willing to give you that fear of those tornadoes because I can't stand what it's doing to my guts. I can't stand it. And what happened? We begin to have lots of tornadoes. <laughs> how can you get over something if you ain't experiencing it? You know, how do you get patience? By being put in situations where you got to use it. Sponsorship's a real good area for that. <laughs> 
we began to have tornado after tornado, and I would just, I'd say, God, God, this is not what I meant. I meant take the tornadoes away. Take them away. And now that's not getting rid of the tornadoes. The fear of tornadoes, that's getting rid of tornadoes. And all of a sudden, one day, I'm sitting there and meditating, and it hit me. It's not tornadoes that's killing me. It's the fear of tornadoes that's killing me. Tornado ain't hit me yet. Fear hits me every damn time. <laughs> now, how does that work? Well, the first thing that happens is they put that darn little blip signal on the TV. And they have, they got a little old funnel cloud. You know, God just makes you feel so good. Why can't they put an ice cream cone? You know, but the, <laughs> they put, they should at our house. We should be afraid of those too. <laughs> And I would sit there and I'd look at and pretty soon I can't see the picture. Now, it's only this tall, but all I can see is that tornado symbol. And then I'll go and turn on another TV on another channel just to get to see two of them. <laughs> I'll turn on the radio and find out what they're doing on the radio. They say, well, it's coming up from Texarkana. See, Texas sends us tornadoes. And they, and, and they seem to follow a path. And they come right up the interstate, right into Little Rock. So it's at Arkadapia. It's on its way to Camden. It's on its way to Camden. It's on its way to Saline County. Saline County is right next to Pulaski County. Pulaski County is where I live. <laughs> By the time it would get there, I'd just be, <laughs> you know, I would just be berserk. And then I couldn't get the damn dogs together to get them in the closet. They'd be biting on me. It was a nerve-wracking mess. And I found out, you know, one of the best things I could do? Turn off the TV. <laughs> Don't turn on the radio. Don't feed the fear. Because, see, I had my little map there, and I'm, ma- and I'm, getting, I'm getting more terrified the closer it gets. I'm mapping it right on up there. And by the time it had got there, I couldn't have done anything if I'd have had to. But if I turn off the TV and turn off the radio and turn it over to God and ask Him to help me and then fill my mind with something else and get busy working on something else, then if the siren went off, I would say, I've got to get in the closet, and I'd go get in the closet. I would not feel like raising daisies in the closet, but I was not sitting in there just going to pieces. My heart wasn't, you know, my blood pressure wasn't shooting out. I wasn't ejaculating in the key of C. You know, I was just there. Okay. Now, went over to this little old place down a few miles out of Little Rock to have supper with my sister one night. We got out to go get back in our car. The wind was blowing. The rain was coming and I'm trying to get in the car door, and I can't hardly get it open from the force of the wind, and I am mad because I'm getting wet. We couldn't see how to drive. I had to pull off the side of the road and sit there, and there's all sorts of debris in the air, and I said, this is a mess, a mess. Went on down the road after a little bit, turned on the radio. Tornado, because a block away from us, the church was totally destroyed. I said, oh, my God, I was in the tornado. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. Even if the tornado comes, I'm okay. God can take care of you in the tornado. I'm okay. I've never found it necessary to go into that terror again. I could if I would play the game and feed the fear. But I know now what steps to take because God has given me the sanity to know what not to do so that I can be relieved of the fear of the storms. Now, what about the dentist? Got the storms down. Now, what about the dentist? How long has it been since you've been to this? Long time. Have very good teeth. It's a good thing. But you see, God knew I had to have good teeth. He knew I wasn't going to go to the dentist. 
I'm sitting at the hospital emergency room with my mother, who's supposedly having a heart attack and my filling falls out. Bad news. I was more concerned about my filling than mother. As it turned out, she wasn't having a heart attack, but I did lose the filling. <laughs> I go home from the hospital, and I said, Now, you can do what you've always done and lose the tooth. You have a choice. Always before, you don't go when it hurts. After a while, you can't stand hot in your mouth. After a while, you can't stand cold in your mouth. After a while, you can't stand your tongue in your mouth. <laughs> After a while, you can't stand the pain any longer. And then you go and they pull the tooth because there's nothing left. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do something different. If you do what you've always done, you get what you've always got. I've always had the toothache and always lost the tooth. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to go to a dentist. Maybe I, they can't take me. Well, if I'd have had to wait, I might have chickened out. See, God knows what you need. So I went. Now, I pulled up in front of this building, and there was a little arrow, and it's showing that it's up on the second floor, and there's a set of stairs, and there's a major thoroughfare out here. And I flipped a coin. I'll go lay in the thoroughfare, or I'll walk up the stairs. <laughs> I walked up the stairs. I walked in. She set me down. She said, we'll be with you in just a moment. I said, sure. And about two seconds later, another one came and got me, took me in there, flipped me in this chair, and my heart... Well, now, back in the days, the last time I went to the dentist, which was 26 years ago, a few years, say, they had all this stuff hanging down, and it looked terrible in there. And I was all braced for all, and there wasn't any of that. There wasn't all that stuff hanging down. And they had a little lounge chair for you to lay in, for God's sake. And she flipped me back, and up on the ceiling it said, God, grant me the serenity to accept the thing. And I knew I was going to be okay. When I was sitting in the waiting room, the, the music was on, and it was on to the local uh, radio channel where one of my grandbabies is a DJ. And I heard her say, have a good day out there. That made me feel good, too. I got in there, and I told the dentist about my fear. And I'm here to tell you, I've been back many times, and the man has never hurt me yet. I have never felt the first pain in that. Now, I don't know if that's all him. I think part of it's God. But I'm no longer afraid to go. And I just go for my regular checkups in there, just bouncing, having a good time. And they've worked on my teeth, and they don't hurt. So you see, God removed that fear. Now, the fear of height. I've been working on that one slowly. <laughs> I'm the person who saw the Grand Canyon on her belly. <laughs> well, you can't walk over there. you got to crawl and peek into It's nice. And then you back up. Because when I stand up, I get this pitching forward sensation, and I just know I'm going to die. I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. Have you ever been in one of these buildings that have a, an elevator on the outside that's glass? Shades of towering inferno. It's horrible. I want you to know that I told God I was ready to have this one removed. And the opportunities for growth have become <laughs> for Christmas. The people who love me so much, who I sponsor, have given me a gift certificate for a hot air balloon ride. <laughs> so the 30th of April this year is our big moment. Well, to get me prepared for that, a few weeks ago I was in Kentucky at a conference, and they provided me with a suite of rooms. 
one person, I was lost. There's more forest space there than half my home, you know. And there's a private elevator, and it's glass, and it was on the outside of this building. And I said, I'm going to do it. And God, you just help me. And God and I looked out at the Ohio River as we went up and down and up and down. And I want you to know that elevator even hung between floors and jerked, you know. But I was okay. So I just know that it's going to be okay and that God is relieving me of that fear as I become willing to have it removed. Our defects call to the defects in others. Have you ever noticed that one? Like, for instance, one of my defects is anger. Say yours is procrastination. If you make me wait, you made me mad. See how that calls from one to the other? If you have a tendency to exaggerate, I have a tendency to not believe you and be doubting. You know, it's real funny, but our defects call to one another. Sick calls to sick. And well calls to well. And I find that when I am around people who are really, really sick, I have to really watch myself or I have a tendency to play. I have a tendency to go over there and play. I believe I have what I call the black dog, white dog syndrome. And in this, I mean that there's two dogs that are at war inside of me. There's a black dog representing all my negative thoughts and the white dog representing my positive. Now, they're always in a war, the positive over the negative. Now, who wins the war? Whatever dog I feed the most. I have a responsibility to fill myself with positives instead of negatives. And when I begin to feel that negative, I have a responsibility at that point to ask God to relieve me from the need to play with that negative and then get on with living in the positive, acting as if. Now we're down to step eight. Now, so far, you know, we've taken care of getting here and getting a relationship with God started, and we've taken a look at ourselves, and we've become willing to change. And that all, that's all fine and dandy. But did you know while we were out there practicing all that bull, we hurt a lot of people. And now if we're going to be all right to live in today, we've got to take care of yesterday. Now in that fourth step, I saw the people I had harmed. And that began my list. And I had a, another thing you can always start off with is your resentment list. Put everybody you resent on that list. Chances are you've done something to them. It's time to get right with ourselves and our fellow man. That's what the eighth and ninth steps are all about. I had hurt nearly everyone that I had ever come in contact with that I had allowed to care for me. I had hurt these people. Now I'm talking there's a difference between making somebody mad or irritating somebody or some of those. I'm talking about a harm done. It doesn't say everybody that we just aggravated. It says people we've harmed, people that we have done harm to. So I list. I think it's better to list too many people than not list enough. And as you will work on this, God will reveal to you which of these are valid and which are not. And as time goes on, you will add more people to this list. I still have my ongoing list. All my major amends from the very beginning after doing that first, fourth, and fifth step, I've taken care of. But it took me years to get them done. Years. So I made three columns on this. I put those that I was willing to make an amends to today. I put the ones that I was wanting to make an amends to, but I wasn't really ready right now. And then I put those over there that I wasn't going to do nothing for them if the world came to an end. <laughs> and the funny thing about it was as I began to work on this list, this middle list moved over. And as I did, the third list moved to the middle. And so there's no one on there now 
that I would not make an amends to. But it was a period of time. And I think the reason we write down a list is because we have a tendency to forget what we want to forget. I'm big on lists. I have to be. I can remember when my mother was my age, and I thought she had brain damage because she couldn't remember anything and she'd forget stuff, and I know exactly how she felt now. The aging process does come, and if I don't do it now, and if I don't write it down, it may never get done. So I have found that writing a list is the best thing. It also gives me encouragement, because when I have my list and as I do them, I get to mark them off, and you get a sense of accomplishment. Well, you wouldn't have if you didn't write it down. But you got to be careful about your willingness, because self-deception and denial will get you here. If you're not careful, you'll go back into, I didn't really hurt them. Not really. It wasn't really that bad. But one of the keys are, how do you feel when you're around them? Do you feel uncomfortable? Do you wish you didn't have to see them? Do you have that vague feeling that you just wish they had dissolved? <laughs> Maybe at that family reunion, you know, you hope they don't come. Or if you look at them, you can't give them eye-to-eye -eye contact. Sort of avoid them, look over their shoulder, hello. Chances are there's something wrong between you and that person. And there's only one thing you can do about it, and that's your part of it. That is your part of it. And it's good for you to do something about your part of it. In the 12 and 12, it tells us to be calm but be kind. I don't think it's necessary when I'm making this list to worry about making the amends, because the step doesn't say make the amends. It says make the list and get ready. When it says get ready, it means get ready. Because when you become ready, you'd be surprised how that next step's going to come right in there and God's going to help you with that. They're not going to, you're not going to have to make these amends till you're ready. But you get ready. And when you realize you're doing it for you instead of the other person, it makes a lot more sense. Because sometimes you may find that that person will not accept your amends. I found that to be in a couple of cases. But I felt better because I'd done what the step said to do. So I'm going to get the benefit regardless. So you put them on the list. You have to be willing to go to any length to get a close contact with your higher power. And if you've done ought against your brother or sister, this will stand between you and your higher power. You know, we're quick. And if you notice in the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us as we forgive those. You see how your forgiveness is contingent? So I want to take care of the things that I've done wrong. And you know, the funny thing about this is, as I become willing to make right the wrongs I've done, I found that there were some things that were happening in my life that people were coming to me about things that they had done wrong. It's funny how this will all sort of go in a circle. You have to take the responsibility for your actions. You can no longer justify them, rationalize them away. I become responsible for what I did to you. And then I am to make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Good judgment, a careful sense of timing, courage, and prudence are qualities we take. 
That was really, really scary. I said, but, but what if, what if they don't accept that? What if they throw it back in my face? What if they do? So what if they do? I had an instance where I went up to a girl that I had harmed and I told her that I was trying. Now you gotta remember, this says make direct amends. It doesn't say make direct apology. I think so many times we'd like to get off site. I'm sorry. Well, I can tell you one thing from being on the receiving end of I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. After a while you want to say you sure are. <laughs> okay? I'm sorry doesn't change anything. So I find that for me, I will tell you that I regret what I have done to you. Now, what can I do to make it up to you? And I don't have to worry about making amends because, see, you'll tell me what I need to do. I don't have to sit there and figure it out. Now, if I have robbed you of $500, I know I owe you $500 plus interest. Now, that's obvious. But I'm just saying, if I don't know how to make up what I've done for you, let you tell me. And if it is within reason and humanly possible, do it. And then you don't have to worry with it. Well, I went to this girl and I told her, I said, I regret the harm that I've done you. And I didn't find it necessary to go into great detail and bring all that back to hurt again. And I said, but could you give me, tell me what I could do to make this up to you? And she said, I don't ever want to see you again as long as I live. I said, I can handle that. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I have tried my best to stay out of her way. Because that's what she asked of me to do. That is not without reason. And that is humanly possible. That the best I can do is to not be around her anymore. Okay. Now, I had that ex-husband. <laughs> now, I had done some pretty tacky things to this man. And I'm not just talking about the obscenities I used to write on his hard-boiled eggs and his lunches. <laughs> I caused him lots of embarrassment on his job. He was in the military. But one of the tackiest things I had done was that um, he had an inheritance when his grandfather died that came to the house in the form of a cashier's check, which I endorsed and spent and didn't tell him about until he came home one day and noticed we had a whole house full of furniture. And he was very upset about the fact that I had gone out and bought furniture and charged all this to him, and I told him he needn't worry about it. It was paid for, and that grandfather he hated had given it to me, which was not quite the truth, you know. And so I wondered how I was going to make an amends for an entire house full of furniture but I knew what the amount of the money was, and I didn't have it to pay back, and so I began to do this. Now, I'm willing to make this amends if God will put him in my path. Now, in my path meant right out in front of my house. <laughs> now, I didn't know that's what it meant, but you see, self-deception is strong. And so I kept waiting, and he never came in front of my house. And um, every year at Christmas, he would send my mother a Christmas card. So this particular year he had, uh, well, see, there was another thing. I justified this even better. I said, you know, he's remarried, has a family. Uh, I don't know how I would feel if I were her and the ex-wife was trying to get a hold of him. It might cause her some problem. I just won't do that. Just let sleeping dogs lie. But the truth was I was scared, but I couldn't see the truth. The fear was blocking me. And so years down the line, my mother got a, uh, a card from him and a letter around Christmas time said his wife had uh, cancer. 
And then later on in the early part of that year, she received a letter from him and his wife had died. Well, my excuse is gone, isn't it? I ignored that. And a couple of weeks later, my mother got another letter from him. Well, see, she never got mail like this from him. And my mother would always say, I got a letter from Wes, you ought to read it. And I would force myself to go do that. You know how nosy we are. (laughs) So I'd go over there and I'd read this letter. And he never mentioned me in his letters. And I would think, see there, he's forgotten. But it just, it began to eat. I got it right across my forehead and I couldn't, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. Anything was just, make your amends, make your amends, make your amends. And so I said, I've got to go lay down and take a nap. I can't handle this. So I went and laid down and dreamed about making amends. And I got up and I said, okay, God, I hear you. I hear you. I lied. I wasn't ready, but I'll do it anyway. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll get the phone number. He lives in Texas. I'll call down information, see if they've got... Maybe they don't have a number. Maybe it's not listed. I called. Of course, it was listed. I said, now, God, if it's not your will, don't let anybody be there. (laughs) You know, you hang on to the bitter end here, you know. And his daughter answered the phone. And I said, is your dad there? And she said, "Uh, yes, may I ask who's calling? Well, I didn't know how to answer that child. I didn't know if he had told her he had been married before or what. And I said, just tell him it's someone from the past. And so when he came to the phone, we talked for a few minutes and about his loss of his wife and what have you. And the funny part about it, though, was when I called and I said, I guess you're wondering who this is. And he said, yes. He said, who is this? And I said, this is Mary Pearl. And he said, Mary Pearl who? <laughs> Don't you love it? He never once called me Mary Pearl. I said, it's babe. And he said, oh. He said, well, you don't sound like you used to. And I said, I hope I'm not like I used to be. And we got to talking. I said, I guess you're wondering why I called. He said, the thought has crossed my mind. (laughs) And I said, well, I belong to a fellowship that says that in order for me to live well and today, I must take care of the harm from the past. And I've done a lot of things that have caused you great harm over the years. And I would like to make amends for those things and change those if I may. If there's something I can do to make that up, and I would like to arrange a payment schedule to pay you back the money that I ripped you off. He said, are you in AA? (laughs) And I said, no, close. I'm in Al-Anon. I said, how'd you know about AA? And he said, I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for eight months. And I said, but you didn't drink when we were together. He said, but after we divorced, he said, I went to Vietnam and... And I got involved in the drugs and alcohol over there. And I said, I can't believe that. So we were able to sit there and to share programs for a while. And I told him, I do need to make this amends. He said, you know, he said, you're on my amends list. He said, you know, I I never bought you that house full of furniture that you, he said, there was very few things that you really asked of me. And I was so tight with money that I just wouldn't. He said, why don't you let me make my amends to you by giving you that furniture? and giving you that stuff. And why don't we just consider ourselves friends at this point? That's how you can make it up to me. Well, to say I was relieved is a small word. (laughs) But you know, I realized then that it wouldn't made any difference. The money wouldn't have made any difference. If he had said, pay me back, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But for the first time, Wes and I could talk as 
equals as friends in the same fellowship. We had something in common for the first time in all those years. And that healed that relationship. And when I got off that phone, I felt free. I no longer had, I didn't realize how that had been burdening me down. I didn't realize the freedom that I was going to get from that. And I know that he's my friend now. I don't have to be afraid of him. I don't have to be worried if I meet him, if I see him, because things are clean between us now. And God did that through an amends. Okay, another amends. My relationship with J.D. was not too hot. You know, I mean, after all, I tried to kill him, you know. And I love the little no-smoking signs. I know there's those of you out there who are in agony because I am an ex-smoker, and I know how that is. And so, you know how it is to wake up in the morning and not have a cigarette? Now, my husband quit drinking and smoking at the same time. Actually, he quit drinking and quit buying cigarettes. And I would get up and he would have smoked my last cigarette. Now, boy, that makes you mad. And we would have this war. And I would jump all in his case and tell him about, how could you do this to me? This was my last cigarette. And we'd have a big knockdown drag out. And this particular day, he left and went over to my mother's to mow her grass. Just anything to get away from me. And I was just fuming. And I mean, I was having a fit. And the phone rang. And it was this girl in Al-Anon. She said, what, what's with you? And I told her about this thief that I live with who had stole my last cigarette. And she said, honey, do you not have any more money? I said, certainly I've got money. She said, well, how far is the nearest grocery store? And I said, two blocks. She said, well, why don't you go get you some and shut up? <laughs> well, he should have had to go down and get them because, I mean, he was the one. She said, he's not doing without the cigarette. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and she says, and how are you going to make an amends for that? I said, but why? He stole a cigarette. She said, you threw the fit. And I said, well, sort of bouncing. <laughs> she said, no, you've got to take care of your part of things. When you do things wrong, you have to take care of your. And I said, what? She said, you're going to have to go tell him that you were wrong. <laughs> wrong? She said, there wasn't anything wrong with making the observation you didn't like the fact that he took your last cigarette. But throwing the fit and cussing the man out about it was an extreme and that you didn't, that was not necessary. I don't want to. She said, okay, you don't want to work the program. I said, I didn't say I didn't want to work. She said, well, that's part of the program. I said, yeah. <laughs> so I got in my car and I drove over to my mother's and I was stomping out across the backfield and JD stopped and squared off. <laughs> And he looked at me and he said, what do you want? And I said, what's wrong? He said, what? And I said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. What? I'm sorry, I was wrong. And big tears began to form in his eyes. He says, do you realize you have never said you were sorry ever? for anything you've ever done? Do you realize you have never been wrong before? <laughs> I stood there and I thought, I'll prove him wrong. 
And I couldn't. And that appalled me to see what I saw. And he cried. And he held me in his arms and he said, I appreciate that so much. So that little amends, the beginning of that, healed the relationship, the beginning for me and J.D. That gave us a starting point on our relationship. I don't make an amends to get rid of my own guilt. I, I found that for me, I can't come to you for forgiveness. I have to forgive me before I go to you. I can't let your forgiveness be contingent on how I feel about me. And that become willing to make amends, I become willing to forgive me for what I've done so that if you refuse me, I will not be devastated. That I can go ahead and live and be okay. I forgive me first. If you forgive me, it's gravy. It's nice, but it's not necessary. All right, say you've got someone who's dead. How do you make an amends to the dead? I blackmail my brother-in-law. I used to uh, blackmail him in order that he would do what I thought he should do by way of my sister. I had some information on him that if I used it, it would have ruined his marriage for it to come to life. And so when I wanted her to have a new ring or if I, all these things because he did not seem to care for her like I thought he should. So I would make him do better things for her. So I would just go to and I'd say, you know, she'd really like to know and he'd do whatever I want him to do. Well, J.R. died right after I came in the program. And I felt really bad about blackmailing him, you know. I didn't at the time. I enjoyed that. Don't you love the power you get in blackmailing? Well, you can really manage and manipulate and control when someone will give in to you when you've really got something juicy on them. And so I felt real bad about that because the man was obviously very sick. And I had taken advantage of a sick person. Now, who's the sicker of the two? And I didn't like me very much for that, but he was dead. Now, what do you do now? And so I was told to go out to the cemetery and have a talk with J.R. So I went out and I said at the cemetery, it's a good thing. Cause see, I had to get this resolved because my plot's right next to his. I could not go to <laughs> I could not go to eternity knowing he was waiting. I just couldn't do that. But I went out there and I sat on the grave and I talked to Jr. and I told him that what I had done was wrong and I begged his forgiveness. I told him the things that I'd always wanted to tell him and didn't tell him. And I know that the things that I did were wrong and I told him that too. And the way I make an amends to Jr is I don't do that to another living one of God's kids ever anymore. There's living amends. And if you find that what you've done is wrong and you can't undo that wrong, you don't do that. If it's within your power, don't ever do that again. So I've not found it necessary to blackmail anybody, and for which I'm sure everybody's grateful. <laughs> now... There, I want to tell you about this last amends, and then we're going to take a break. My mother. Boy, now this was a biggie. And I'd hated her all my life. And I felt like she hated me. And part of the reason I hated her was because that she didn't love me, and I would keep going to her for approval. And I would never get that approval. No matter how hard I tried, no matter what I did, it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough, wasn't long enough, it wasn't, it wasn't right. I could make straight A's, and that was expected. It was not anything that you got a pat on the shoulder about. All I ever wanted was my mother to pat me on the shoulder and say, 
You did good, kid. My mama never did that, but she'd tell you every time you didn't do good, I can tell you. And I hated her for that. Because I found myself, even as a married woman, an adult, going to my mother still looking for that approval. Going to that dry hole time and time again and coming away with that same feeling and hating her. Hating her for doing this to me. Hating her. But I wanted to clear up these relationships. And I knew that I had done a lot of things, mean, cruel things to my mother to get even with her for not loving me. And so God sent a girl from Missouri by the name of Betty. And Betty came to our group, and she had had a lot of mama problems. Seems like a lot of us women have problems with our mothers for whatever reason. And so Betty told me, she said, you don't accept your own limitations, therefore you don't accept your mother's. So what's that got to do with anything? She said, you just think about that and pray about that. And I saw that, you know, I couldn't accept the way I felt anymore than I could accept the way that she seemed to feel about me. And I wanted her to love me unconditionally, but I would not love her that way. I wanted her to love me regardless because she was my mother, but yet I refused to. I was wanting her to do it first because I didn't want to get hurt. And I didn't want to put out all this love and not get anything back for it. That's, that was one of the big deals right there. And I'd always tried, and I'd call myself reaching out only to get shot down at the pass. Couldn't handle it. Well, mama ain't going to change. But I would look at my mama, and I would see this mean, vicious old bat who was out to get me. That's how I'd see her. Every time I was over there by, I'd go back and I'd feel like I was like six or seven years old when I'd go in there. And I would be defensive and I would be on guard to listen for every word she said to get any kind of hurt that I could. I was like a sponge. Beat me, kick me, hurt me, tell me I'm cheap. I love it. <laughs> I'd do that when I was around her and it was a subconscious thing. I couldn't seem to help myself when I was around her. And so Betty told me, she says, have you ever thought about asking God to let you see your mama like he sees her? No. I never thought about doing that with anybody. But it's a wonderful tool, I'll tell you. So one day I was going over to my mama's. Now, I never do anything immediately when it's suggested. I have to mull it over it and get to a point where there's nothing left to do and then you try it. And so I was going over there that day and I said, God, if it be your will, let me see my mother as you see her. And when I drove up, Mama was raking leaves in the backyard. And my Mama's short. She's a little bitty old thing. I never realized that. She always seemed so formidable. And she looked frightened and lonely. Someone needing love real bad. She didn't look like my Mama. And I could have compassion for that person. And it moved me so to be able to see her for once instead of being mean or anything, but somebody needing something. My mother always thought was so self-sufficient, she didn't need anything. So I went over, I asked her to put her leaf broom aside, and I put my arms around her. Boy, she's stiff enough. See, she's not used to that either. But I needed to do that for me. I needed to be able to give to my mother. And time went on. And then one day I realized in my relationship with my daddy, when he died, I made him a saint. He became perfect. And I compared her to him every day, and she always came up short. And I realized that daddy spoiled me rotten. 
And the way that he had raised me wasn't the way I needed to learn how to live for God's sake. The daddy taught me that the whole world was going to lay down and do it my way. Because he always did. And that wasn't the truth. And then I began to see all these rules and regulations that mother had. My God, those are some of the principles I was trying to live by. And I had to look at her in a completely different light. And maybe she wasn't. God, that's hard and that's real confusing and it took a long time. And I would sit in there and I would cry. Let me tell you. To take daddy from sainthood and make him a human being was very painful. And I had to, what I, what happened here was my dream of how my daddy was had to die. Daddy wasn't how I wanted him to be. That was a fantasy person I had made. And that dream had to die. And so one day I'd gone to the bank and in my mind came the voice and it said, go see your mama today. I don't know why, but I went. I go see my mother frequently, so it's not a big deal. I didn't know. If I'd have known I was going to make an amends that day, I would have been scared to death. But I didn't know, because, see, I'd just become willing to make the amends. So when I got over at my mother's that day, she said, Do you remember what happened when your daddy died? And I said, Well, yeah. And I began to tell her, and she said, Well, I don't remember it that way. And I thought, Oh, here we go. Mother's going to say, You're calling me a liar, and we're going to get into it. And she didn't. And she said, you know, you were 12 at the time, and I was in my 50s. We probably saw it different. And chances are, memories are how we choose to remember instead of how things really are. That was really profound for Mother. You know, I didn't think my mother had the ability to have a profound thought. <laughs> See, I'd always judged her. I'd always judged her. And she said, you know, it was about the time your daddy died and you became such a rotten, honorary kid. She said, why did you do that? And I said... Because I was getting even with you for not loving me. And she said, you mean, what do you mean I didn't love you? And I said, well, Mama, you never once put your arms around me. You never held me. You never told me you loved me. You never said you did good. You never did any of these things. And she said, but I put a roof over your head. I put food in your mouth and clothes on your back. It was more than I had. You see, my mother was raised in that alcoholic home. She had to leave when she was 13 because her father tried to rape her while he was drunk. She'd lived out of garbage cans. I'd been looking for her to give me something she didn't have all her life. You're taught love. She gave the best she had. She didn't know how to love. Now, it's a lot easier to make an amends. And my guilt was very strong now. And I looked at her and I thought, what a horrible thing to do to another human being. To keep going back to them, asking them for something they don't have. And hating them because of it. And I said, well, Mama, what can I do to make an amends to you for all the things that I've done that have hurt you? And she said, forgive me for not being the kind of mother you needed. She was the kind of mother I needed. I just cut her off every chance she took. I believe that God has always put in front of me what I needed. And I'm so blind in my arrogance. If it's not packaged just like I think it ought to be, I'll miss it. And my mother put her arms around me and she held me and she said, Baby, I love you. I've always loved you. And my mother and I have a real good relationship today. It's not that fantasy relationship that I seem to think that mothers and daughters were supposed to have. 
but we can have fun together. I no longer, I've never found it necessary to hate her again. I have compassion for her on a regular basis. And you know I like me when I'm around my mother because I don't have to go to her for approval anymore because the little girl in me grew up and I became a friend and have stopped looking for her for what she can't give. And look around me at the love that y'all have given me. You see, I, read, I would take this love but not nurture it. Instead, I'd want it from her. She doesn't know how. So when you hold me and you love me and you tell me you love me, you become my mother's love for me. You heal me of that need to have to go where it's not available. And the marvelous part is, did you know that my mother has started telling me, I love you? My mama hugged me and kissed me the other day before I came. And she said, I love you. I'll be worried till you get home. You're going up that Yankee land. <laughs> she says, I hate it when you fly. I just hate it. But that's a miracle. And how did it come? When I became willing to make an amends and to change that relationship, when I began willing for God to change me so that the other things can change around me, the healing took place. So we'll take a break and then go into step 10. I tell you what, if your legs are like my, I mean, if your buns are like my legs, we're getting tired here. <laughs> okay, step 10. Didn't think I'd make it to this point. You know, the next steps, 10, 11, and 12, are what I call the spiritual growth steps. Because if you've done everything up to this point, you've taken care of the past. You can put the past behind you. And now you're going to be living in the today. You no longer have to worry about the things from the past crawling up and zapping you. Now, you notice the step says, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, not if we were wrong. Perhaps we might be wrong. The occasion that we might think we're wrong. It says when you're wrong. So that, that gives me some comfort to know that everybody must be wrong sometime. I didn't used to feel that way about it. I couldn't admit I was wrong because I thought that meant I was a mistake. But I've taken care of all that now. I've got that behind me. And now, according to the big book, we're going to enter into the world of the Spirit. I want to start off by saying there seems to be controversy at different places about something that happens after step nine. There are promises to be had. Now, the book doesn't say if we're painstaking about this phase of our alcoholic development, We'll be amazed before we're halfway through. That's not what the book says. It tells me that anybody that works the 12 steps are going to be able to claim these promises. And you know, I hear a lot of Al-Anon meetings sometimes, they'll say, we can't have those promises, they belong to AA. Well, if the promises are a result of working the steps, and if you're working the steps, what's the problem with the promises? I'm going to show you. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Well, I'll tell you one darn thing. If being able to not hide when the tornado comes, if being able to go out and to be able to bear myself like I have with y'all this weekend is not a new freedom, I don't know what is. And needless to say, if I don't have to worry about my past jumping me all the time, I can be a lot more happy. So a new freedom and a new happiness I had begun to experience. We'll not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. 
I don't regret what I've done in the past because what I've done in the past is what helps me to see how much better off I am today. If I hadn't have done what I did, I wouldn't be where I am. So I don't regret the past. I regret the harm that I caused in the past. But I did everything I had to do up through a while ago to be where I am right now. That's the way my life is. I'll comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Serenity and peace for me were the ability to lie down at night and your mind shut off when your head hit the pillow. Do you ever think about that? You can lay down and you can go right on off to sleep in peace. You no longer have to figure out what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, how you're going to manipulate this, that, or what have you. I knew a new serenity and I knew the word peace. Peace means that I can stay by myself and be okay. I can remember when I used to live alone, when I was between husbands, boyfriends, and what have you. I wasn't alone very long because I had this hole inside of me that someone had to fill. And so I would go out and find someone that I could take hostage, bring home, and they could fill this emptiness within me. I can be at my house alone by myself, and it's okay. I can sit there and do nothing. I can grow mold, and it's okay. Used to, I had to be doing something all the time because I didn't know how to relax. I've learned how to relax. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Well, I don't know how far down the scale I've gone. I've gone as far as I choose to go today. But I know that in sharing with you what I was like, it gives you permission to tell the truth about yourself. Because that's what I found from people sharing with me. I was not proud of physical violence that came down in our home. But we had a lady in our group that made the observation one day how she'd taken a baseball bat to her husband and broke several of his ribs, and I loved her. <laughs> Not because she beat him up, but because she talked about beating him up. Because I couldn't express what I'd done until somebody else did. So that's what's so important, is to be able to share those feelings with other people, to share those things, those frustrations. Normal people do not run around beating on one another. But people who are very upset and don't know how to deal with their anger will do that. And so that's what showed me that it was okay to talk about this garbage in my life and to bring it out into the open. That feeling of usefulness and self-pity will disappear. I can't tell you the number of times that I have laid there and thought, there's no reason for me to be alive in this world. And when I played with that one long enough, that's what drove me to a suicide attempt. My feeling of usefulness and wallowing in that self-pity that came with it. You're no good. You've never been any good. You'll never be any good. You're a mistake. You shouldn't have happened. Now, I want to tell you something. That word mistake bothered me for a long time. I'm a change-of-life baby. And I was told all my life that I was a mistake. I shouldn't have been here. Well, you know, as many times as people get out there and get with it, as compared to the number of pregnancies that actually occur, I believe there is a power greater than us that is making the moment of conception happen. And I don't believe that anybody is a mistake. I believe that God is in charge of life and death, and I don't believe anybody's born or anybody dies that God is not in control of that situation for whatever reason. And I'm talking about people that even take their lives. A friend of ours took their life last night. A child of a really close friend in this fellowship. He couldn't make the fellowship. 
I think God knew he was never going to make it and saved him from a life of hell and torment and allowed him to do what he had to do for himself last night. But that feeling of usefulness and self-pity, I found that I had a use when something that I shared of myself could help somebody else. Doesn't that make you feel good to know that you... That God would use you as a tool to help somebody else. I must remember, it's never me. It's God working through me. Because if I take credit for it, I'll lose it. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. I never cared about you. I cared about me, 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 me. And when I began to care more about you and less about me was after I had worked to this point. Self-seeking will slip away. I don't have to go and do for me. I'm happier when I'm doing for you. But I only can do that if I've taken care of myself spiritually. I can only be free to do that if I have taken care of myself spiritually. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. It went from good God another day to God thank you for another day. Now that's a change of attitude. When I was more willing to love than to be loved, that was a change of attitude. When I was more willing to give than to receive. That's a change of attitude. These things happen. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. Did you know that as I became willing to get rid of the defect of fear and also became willing not to go to the mall that my economic insecurity began to leave me? As I began to get rid of those defects of character, as I become willing to release those things. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. So many times you will be doing something and the right thing will pop into your head as to what you should do in a situation. Intuitively, you will know. When your contact is in the right place, you'll be surprised how much better your intuition is. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Think of what I've shared with you about the miracles with the truck, with all these other things that's happened in my life, with God doing for me, God allowing me to see my mother, something that I couldn't do for myself. Is that not the promises? And I love this part, and I think we should always read the next paragraph, because this is the reason. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always, always materialize if we're willing to work for them. And I think that's the key. So many times we are not willing to work for stuff. We want it to just be sprinkled down on us from the promise fairy. <laughs> Was that a bad word? <laughs> so... Having, you see, your whole life has changed now at this point. You cannot get to this point without your life changing. Because step six, seven, eight, and nine, you have begun changes. You became willing, and now your life is different. And if it's not different in your own nine, you've missed something somewhere. You have missed something, and you better go back. Because each step seems to balance on the one above it. You build your foundation one step at a time. It's sort of like if you had a step ladder out there. And you said, step 10 looks like a good one. I think I'll go for it. And you run from out here and you go, now I'd bust the seat out of my pants if I went from ground to 10. I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of people try and do it. Or they'll take part of step one and zip to 12. Okay. Promptly. 
Why does the step 10 talk about promptly making an amends? My promptly is so I don't have to carry around guilt and resentment and give me enough time to justify what I've done. Because you give me a little time and I will justify why you shouldn't have done what you did. Because if you hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have had to do this. You deserved it. If I'm doing it promptly, I can't do all that because I don't have time. Now, promptly doesn't necessarily mean right this minute because, you see, I might not even notice I've done you a harm. But the key to that is as soon as I recognize I've done you a harm, I need to take some action here. Promptly is as soon as I recognize it's there. And I've there's signs for me to tell when I've hurt you. Number one is I don't feel comfortable. Number two is, you're not treating me like you did. Because most people, when they get hurt, don't come and ask for another dose in the face. They'll pull back from you. Wonder why they don't call me anymore. Wonder how they always avoid me at the... Why didn't she speak to me? Wonder why that. I don't feel good about that. Is there something the matter? There's always go up and say, I, there seems to be something the matter. You know, if you don't know, they'll let you know. Believe me, they will let you know. It's a continuation of steps four and five. It's a daily looking at yourself and admitting it to God and someone else. Now, what did we do in step four? We wrote down what our inventory was. Well, if we're going to continue to do that, why wouldn't we write it down again? I found that for me, when I take a written inventory, tenth step, that I begin to see the patterns of my daily living. Now, I didn't mind making amends by the time I got to this step. I'd got to the point where I could say, I'm wrong, I admit it, I screwed up, no big deal. But I found that I was making the same kind of amends over and over and over and over. Now, that's disturbing. Why am I have to make those same kind of amends? Because I'm still doing that over and over and over and over. Well, what is it I'm doing? Well, here was the pattern. Here was the situation, different names, places, and what have you, but the bottom line was the same. And I would never have seen it if it hadn't been written down. Would never have seen that pattern. Because I could look back over the last three or four weeks, if you've been having a hard time, look back over that daily inventory, and you'll see where the problem is if you're being honest. If you're being honest. And I always end the tenth step with something positive. There's never a day goes by that somebody doesn't do something good. And mine can be, I didn't lose my temper today. That's good for me. You ought to believe it. You can't carry grudges anymore. Not with promptly. Promptly won't let you carry a grudge. Now, see, I used to be a grudge carrier. You know, I'd write it down in my memory and carry it a long time. We call it gunny sacking. You put it in your little gunny sack of resentments and you carry it along. And then one day when you've had all you want, you holler, Nicky sob! That's now I got you, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and then you dump on them. And you tell them everything they've ever done in the last six months that's griped you. I was real bad to do this with my husband. There would be all these little bitty things that was coming down that I didn't like and that I was carrying resentments and grudges about. And then one day I'd just get all I could handle and I'd say, Aha! And I'd say, let me tell you. You remember back 12 years ago when you did this? And I mean, I could come all the way down through the years and listen to you. Every This is just like the time you did this, this, and this. That wasn't letting go of anything. See, that was carrying all those resentments in that little old gunny sack. Well, I can't do that if I'm living in today. 
I can't afford, that's one of the reasons that I find that if you do something that irritates me, I can say, that irritates me. Please don't do that. I don't like what you did. That doesn't say I don't like you. But if I don't tell you I don't like what you did, pretty soon I'll say, I hate your guts. I will transfer that from what you did to you. If I don't care, take care of it promptly. Promptly. Okay? And the longer I go without doing an amends for the wrongs I've done, the more apt I am never going to make that amends. Because I will justify it, rationalize it, into where it's all your fault, and I am totally pure as the driven snow. I'll do that if I keep carrying it on longer and longer. I've, or I take now, like, uh, dishonesty. When you have a tendency to exaggerate, what do you do when you're when you're lying? When you, somebody says to you, uh, well, we had... <laughs> I got real tickled. One of the boys in our group, somebody asked him one day, said, do you tur uh, go turkey hunting? And he said, yes. And he came to me and he said, I've never heard it tur hunted a turkey in my life. He said, why did I say yes? I said, I don't know. You tell me why. And he said, I guess I thought it was an ego thing that I should have been doing that. I found that in those situations when people ask you questions, you ever hear yourself telling them a bald-faced lie and you know it's a lie? is stop right then and say, that was a lie. Now that'll quit, that'll stop you from doing that, I'll tell you. <laughs> you know when you're telling somebody something and you're just going on and on and you're like, that's a damn lie. I don't know why I said that. I guess I was trying to get your attention or what have you, but this is the truth. When you start doing that and you start cleaning it up promptly, you'd be surprised how that will be a good tool to keep you from doing that mess. Because it's real embarrassing to have to do that, especially with complete strangers. You know, someone can come up to you at the grocery store and you'll have something on, they'll say, oh, I love that, where'd you get it? And say, you know, you would like to say, I got it at uh, Saks. And you say, I got it at Saks. And they'll say, oh, and I'll say, the Kmart division. <laughs> you know, you've got to tell the truth. It's a little thing, but you'd be surprised if you just take a list each day how many times you tell stuff that's just not so. And that doesn't mean it has to be a blatant lie. It can be. But it's those little exaggerations throughout the day. And then I'd have emotional hangovers. You ever go to bed and, you, and you've got this thing and it's bothering you and you know you did it and you get up the next morning and you feel like a dog because all night long, you know, you've known that you've got to do this thing. It was bad and you shouldn't have done it. You don't have to do that with promptly. Because once I make it and write it down, I know that in order for me to write today's list down, I'm going to have to start off with, I made that amends. Because if I don't, it's going to wonder why. What happened over here? Okay. Um, the purpose of the step is for us to get in a habit of looking at ourselves on a daily basis. You realize we got here because we didn't look at ourselves on a daily basis. We'd, let, we'd look at stuff and then we'd push it to the back and not deal with it. We'd look at more stuff and push it to the back. That's how we got where we are. So we're going to have to demander, uh, live in a manner which demands that rigorous honesty. We're going to have to take that daily look so that we don't build that bag of garbage to carry with us again. Now that doesn't mean that we're never going to have to do a fourth and a fifth step again. I believe that for me, I take an annual inventory every year. Now this inventory is not like the original inventory. This inventory is a progress report where I can see from where I came from last year as compared to this year, 
I can see the areas of my life where I have got improvements. I can see the areas that I backslid in, too. And it tells me what I need to be doing, what, where my program is falling off. If you've got that little vague feeling of discomfort, there's something just, just not quite right. You can do that annual inventory, take a look at that, and you can see why you're not just quite right. And it has nothing to do with doing the 10th step every day. I can do that, but I need to see for myself my growth. Because if I don't sometimes, I get really down. You ever feel like when you're sitting there in the meeting that everybody in the meeting's growing but you? And the reason is, they're all growing but you. <laughs> you get a little complacent, you know? And you begin, you sit there and start comparing yourself to other people. Have you ever noticed that you never compare yourself to an equal? You're always better than or less than. You're never the same with. So that's the reason I find that the only true person I can compare myself to is me, where I came from. And that's what I do with this annual inventory. I have a choice now to choose how I feel, how I react to things, what I'm doing. I can do a spot check inventory during the day. If I get a little uncomfortable during the course of the day, I can look at myself and see what's the matter. And I have to ask myself, what's the reality here? Not necessarily my feelings, but what's reality? Because a lot of times my feelings have nothing to do with reality. You know, the reality is everybody may love me, but the, the feeling may be nobody loves me. You know, we get real sick in our feelings. I've learned that I'm going to have to use some self-discipline. I don't like doing that. I'm a free spirit, you know. I don't like to do that. But I have to do that. I have to go back and take a look. And I have to persevere in doing this. And it's real funny. If you miss it two or three nights, it's like going to church. You don't miss it at all then. I mean, you can just go forever and not have to go back. You can get healed right there. Not have to worry about it. But when I do that, then I get in trouble. And then you have to go back to what works. That's what I found in this program. If it works, don't fix it. So I know what works for me so I can go back and get it to work for me again. Now, the 11th step. I love this step. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. It says improve it. That means you're bound to have one by this time. As we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. I don't have to know what God needs for my husband to do. I don't have to tell God what to tell J.D. to do. You know, I used to pray that way, you know. I'll let him go, and then I'll tell God what he needs to do. I'll sit God on him. I've learned that prayer is me talking to God, telling God how I feel. And I tell God how I feel. If I get up and feel like shit, I tell God that. I say, God, I feel like shit today. And I don't, my God is not going to zap me for saying that because he knows me, loves me, and accepts me just as I am. God has to accept me when I'm like that because I'm more like that than I am like some other way. And when I need the love the most is when I have done something I shouldn't do. You know, people who don't deserve love need it more than anybody else. Those that don't feel worthy. And so I need to feel that contact that I'm going to get the same kind of love regardless if I'm good or bad. If you want to share your experience, strength, and hope, join our conversation at The Recovery Show, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 
734-707-8795. Call right now, 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation directly from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. And our website is therecovery.show and contains all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, a contact page with all of the different ways that you can join our conversation at therecovery.show slash contact. Episode notes can be found at therecovery.show slash and then the episode number such as therecovery.show slash 209 for this episode. Had a few short emails this week. Sacha wrote, Thank you for this wonderful podcast. I've taken great comfort in it. It is so well balanced and inclusive to all. My best to Spencer and all those who help him provide this outstanding act of service. And thank you, Sacha. Darlin sent gratitude. I discovered your podcast a week ago. I'm full of gratitude for the work you're doing. Thank you. And Jeff sent us a short note about the humility episode, which was number 208 at therecovery.show slash 208. Jeff writes, great job, Spencer and Eric. Always nice to hear Eric join you. Thanks. Heron wrote, thank you for the show. It is a great supplement to -to face-to-face meetings. I have a correction from the show on humility. Eric used a quote, which is often wrongly assigned to Nelson Mandela. It is an awesome quote by Marianne Williamson. She deserves the recognition even though Nelson Mandela is an amazing man. Thanks, Aaron. And thank you, Aaron, for that correction. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses that run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Sacha, Darlin, Jeff, and Andrea did. And thank you again for your contributions. We've put together a list of recovery-related books, Click or tap on the books link in the menu at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show, or just listening. We are here for you. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. <laughs>